I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about recent cases at the court, an interview of Justice Thomas by his wife, Ginny, and we'll interview Ohio Solicitor General Eric Murphy. Well, welcome back to our listeners. And what's happening at the Supreme Court this week? Well, there are no new grants. There are no new opinions, so what have they been up to? Yeah, what are they doing over there? I am not sure. Well, the orders this week included some disappointing denials, including the Utah Prairie Dog case. This is, I love the name, it's People for the Ethical Treatment of Property Owners versus U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Such a great name. (laughs) Petpo. Dealing with Congress's Commerce Clause power to regulate activity that could affect the ecosystem of a species found only within one state and that is not traded or used in commercial activity. So we were sorry to see that that case was uh, was denied. So, Tiffany, there was also a per curiam opinion. You want to tell us a little bit about it and maybe remind our listeners what a per curiam opinion is? Yes. So these opinions are generally short, unsigned opinions, so no justice um, puts their name on it. Um, and they're, they're usually unanimous, but that's not always the case. Um, and so in this one, Justice Thomas had a scathing dissent um, joined by Justices Alito and Gorsuch. Um, So the case was Tharp v. Sellers, and in the case, the petitioner, Tharp, was convicted of brutally murdering his wife's sister, um, and he was sentenced to death by a jury in Georgia. And years later, he tried to reopen his case, claiming that one of the jurors was biased against him because he's black. And um, he showed this by producing an affidavit from a white juror um, that they... Um, signed like seven years later, making some really horrible and racist statements. Um, But the lower court court ruled against him, said he can't reopen his case because um, he didn't demonstrate that the juror's behavior had a a substantial and injurious effect or influence in determining the jury's verdict, which kind of makes sense because the facts in this case were really horrendous. Um, But the Supreme Court vacated that decision Um, Even though they noted that um, the petitioner, Tharp, faces a very high bar in showing the jurist of reason um, could disagree with that determination. So Thomas um, wrote a very lengthy dissent, um, writing that the court's disposition in this case was unusual um, and that it was engaged in ceremonial (laughs) hand-wringing because it saw a racial injustice. So um, he wrote that the court must be disturbed by the racist rhetoric in that affidavit and must want to do something about it. But the court's decision is no profile in moral courage. By remanding this case to the Court of Appeals for a useless do-over, the court is not doing Tharp any favors. And its unusual disposition of this case callously delays justice for Jacqueline Freeman, the black woman who was brutally murdered by Tharp 27 years ago. So this has been a theme with Justice Thomas in a number of, I think, mostly dissenting opinions where he, he... brings back uh, details about the victim in these sorts of cases, um, you know, calling to mind uh, details about the victim. And I think one time he even included a photo of the victim, um, just so I think as a reminder to his colleagues that they don't lose sight of uh, of what happened here and that there was a horrific crime. 
So moving on to the arguments that the court heard this week, uh, there were two original jurisdiction cases. We'll call them the water wars. So (laughs) the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction under Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution over cases in which a state is a party. These cases make up a very small portion of the court's docket. Since the 1960s, the court has received fewer than 140 motions for leave to file original cases, and it only ended up hearing about half of those. Yeah, it seems to really not like... It does not like original original jurisdiction. Yeah. So most of these cases are boundary or water disputes between two or more states. So this week, the court heard argument in, uh, in a case, Texas versus New Mexico and Colorado, and this is a dispute over the Rio Grande Compact uh, Compact of 1938 and the Rio Grande Project Act, which both apportion water rights among these three states. And the second case is Florida versus Georgia, which stems from a series uh, it, it stems from a series of droughts in the 1980s that exacerbated conflicts over water supply in the, uh, and this is a mouthful, the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, Flint River Basin. Isn't that the, the Alan Jackson. river that Alan Jackson <laughs> the Chattahoochee. sings about? Yeah. yeah. So this boils down to how the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers manages five dams and four reservoirs in that area. Um, the case also, or the court also heard an important um, voter role case uh, this week, Houston um, versus the Randolph Institute. Um, and we've talked about this this case before. And the court will essentially decide whether states can ensure their voter rolls aren't filled with non-residents and dead people who um, shouldn't be registered to vote. Um, it seems like a pretty uncontroversial proposition that states should be allowed to keep their voter rolls clean. And in fact, federal law, the NVRA, requires states to make reasonable efforts to clean their their voter rolls. Um, but the Randolph Institute, a liberal group in Ohio, is challenging Ohio's process for move, removing ineligible voters from the rolls. They say Ohio is m- removing people solely um, because they didn't vote, which would also violate um, the NVRA. But Ohio isn't doing that. They're not removing people just for not voting. They have a pretty common sense um, process for doing this. So if someone doesn't vote in two years, Ohio will send them a confirmation notice and ask if they still live at their registered address. If the person doesn't return the notice and then doesn't vote for an additional four years in any state, uh, local state or federal election, then Ohio will remove them um, from the rolls. And I'll note that in past settlements with the U.S. Department of Justice, the DOJ has directed certain localities um, who have agreed in their settlements to undertake virtually the same process. Um, But so the outcome of this case is very important for states um, in order to ensure they have the ability to keep their voter rolls clean and to ensure the integrity of their elections. And I think Ohio uses the U.S. Postal Service's change of address database to identify when they think people might have moved. So that is one of the reasons why they send out these confirmation notices. It's not like they're just singling out people who who didn't vote in, in one election. Um, and also in this case, the uh, the Trump administration uh, made headlines for siding with the state of Ohio and changing uh, its previous position under the Obama administration. So we were um, glad to see that uh, Solicitor General Noel Francisco had divided argument time and was supporting the state of Ohio. So there were also two cases argued this week involving automobiles and the Fourth Amendment. One is Collins versus Virginia, and this is whether the Fourth Amendment's automobile exception permits a police officer to enter private property and search a vehicle parked a few feet from the house, of course, without a warrant. 
So on the one hand, there is an expectation of privacy in the home and in the area surrounding a home, which is known as the curtilage. I love that uh, that term. I, I remember learning that in law school, and I just thought it was a, a fun term. That's so really random. You should try to work it into your everyday conversation, talk about the curtilage to your home. Uh, but there is also a reduced expectation of privacy in cars. That's why the court has recognized an exception to the warrant requirement for police to search cars. So we'll see uh, We'll see what happens there. The second car case is Bird versus United States. And this is whether a driver has a reasonable expectation of privacy in a rental car when he has the renter's permission to drive the car, but he is not an authorized driver under the rental agreement. So SCOTUS will decide who gets Fourth Amendment protection, only authorized drivers or any driver with possession and control of the vehicle. So I thought it was interesting that an amicus brief by the state of Arizona points out that drug couriers, human traffickers, and alien alien smugglers commonly use rental cars. So perhaps that's something that It'll be at the, the back of the minds of some of the justices. So that was the, the cases that were argued this week. Um, also this week, we watched a, um, a really cute interview by um, Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, um, and she interviewed the justice. And they talked, he talked about his upbringing, about being born into poverty, and the fact that he was raised by his grandparents when his mother couldn't take care of him and his brother. And he called the fact that he ended up with his grandparents miraculous, and he said that it was providential that that happened um, since his grandparents had such a big influence on um, the person he became. He also talked about how his faith is incredibly important to him and about how he goes to mass um, before going to work. And then he talked with Ginny. They joked about how he really likes nerdy books, and (laughs) um, he tried to get her to read some of them. It was really cute. Um, I loved seeing their their interaction. You can tell... um, from the interview that they're just so in love even after all these yes, years after that's really all these sweet. years it's it's very sweet um, she also asked the justice if he had any marriage advice for people, and, and he said, well, I have a sign on my desk, and it says, don't make fun of your wife's choices. You are one of them. <laughs> I think that's good advice. Yeah, so it's uh, it's about a half an hour long, and it's a, it's a great, great interview, so we'll we'll share that on our, uh, on our Twitter yeah. account. And it's on the, the Daily Caller News Foundation's website. So earlier this week, uh, we also spoke with the um, Ohio Solicitor General. We're pleased to have Eric Murphy, the Solicitor General of Ohio, with us. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Eric. Uh, Thank you. Happy to be here. So as Solicitor General, your job is to be the primary lawyer representing the state of Ohio in court. Many states have Solicitor Generals today, a Solicitor's General, excuse me, but it's a relatively (laughs) recent invention. Can you tell us a little bit about your role? Sure. Yeah. So in Ohio, I am the ninth uh, state solicitor. Uh, uh, Rich Cordray was the first, and... Uh, Jeff Sutton, who uh, probably uh, expanded the office and really expanded the um, the role probably nationwide with a lot of the cases he did, uh, was the was the second. Um, and I think the role uh, in Ohio at least has changed uh, over time. It's expanded. Um, I think uh, when Judge Sutton was the state solicitor, I don't think he had a staff. There's now a separate appeal section um, in the attorney general's office. Uh, it's staffed by seven lawyers, including myself. Uh, and we have um, jurisdiction over the Ohio Supreme Court's discretionary docket involving state, uh, the state itself, and state agencies. Uh, uh, so that would be I, I view our our role as very similar to the USSG and the U.S. Supreme Court and the Ohio Supreme Court. We will file lots of amicus briefs in criminal cases on behalf of criminal prosecutors or 
other civil cases um, on, in which the state has an interest. Uh, and so that would be the Ohio Supreme Court, which is probably our core, core domain. Um, in, in the U.S. Supreme Court, we also handle all the litigation on behalf of the, the state there uh, and then file occasional multi-state uh, amicus briefs as well. Um, and then in the S- Sixth Circuit, uh, just handle um, – it's more discretionary. depends on the, the, the case. Uh, so that's that's our uh, the the appeal section and and um, the the section I oversee our our general docket. Um, it certainly has expanded over time, and I think it's great uh, th- that it's also expanded nationally. I think most states now have an SG that um, is a dedicated appellate lawyer, uh, and it's it's great to work with my colleagues. I talk with many of them throughout the throughout the country regularly. So as you mentioned, um, you've had the opportunity to argue before Ohio's Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, and, and the Sixth Circuit. So how do these experiences differ, and do you have a favorite court that you like to appear before? Uh, so let's see. How do they differ? They, the U.S. Supreme Court is obviously the most uh, intimidating, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do that less less uh, regularly. Um uh, it's also a great court to be in, and you just feel the grandeur when you're there. Um, and in the Ohio Supreme Court, it's very interesting. They um, uh, our our uh, moot courtroom in the, the Attorney General, the Rhodes Tower in in uh, in Ohio, uh, is the old Ohio Supreme Court. So it's just this um, uh, small hearing room. Frankly, it was surprising that that was the Ohio Supreme Court. But in uh, the early 2000s, it was moved to an old FDR style building that is also a fantastic building to argue in. They, they remodeled it the, uh, in 2000, I think in four or so. Um, and it, it's fun to argue there. Uh, I think the main difference between those two courts and the Sixth Circuit uh, is you know, generally speaking, um, who, when you're writing the brief, who the who the panel is going to be and, and you know kind of their views. So like with the U.S. Supreme Court, you know there are textualists on the court like Justice Gorsuch. There are mm-hmm. other individuals who um, have different modes of interpretation. And so when you're thinking strategically about your case, you'll try to incorporate all of those into your, into your brief. In the Sixth Circuit, um, uh, you don't know who the panel is until about two <laughs> weeks before. I mean you probably generally speaking would do most of the same things, I guess, because you um, don't, don't know who the panel is. But – yeah, so it's uh, all, all all sorts of different experiences. I think the U.S. Supreme Court um, uh, has, you know, ever since Justice Scalia came around, got a lot more active in its questions, and I, I would probably say that uh, uh, it is the most active. Um, so, do you have any pre-argument rituals? Do you eat four bananas like some some people in SG's office? <laughs> so, no, I I, uh, I I actually go to mass uh, for U.S. Supreme Court arguments, uh, like eight o'clock mass, right before, out right near the church. That's probably the main ritual I have for U.S. Supreme Court arguments. For the others, I can't think of any. I mean, hide hide under my desk for a week. Before the <laughs> no <laughs> lucky, lucky socks or anything like that. No. <laughs> um, so your first Supreme Court argument was an unusual case, uh, Susan B. Anthony List versus Driehaus. And this was a challenge involving Ohio's law criminalizing false speech in elections. Some would call this uh, criminalizing truthiness. So although you were defending Ohio's law, your boss, the attorney general, filed an amicus brief questioning the law's constitutionality, which was kind of a unique situation. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So this this case um, uh, uh, was on my desk, uh, the cert petition, like one of my first days in the, in the <laughs> office. I, I, I did not anticipate um, – Litigating against SBA list as my first case in the U.S. Supreme Court, but uh, that's that's how it happens when you're a state lawyer. Um, 
And I guess uh, against Mike Carvin, no exactly. less. Exactly, <laughs> Mike, Mike Carvin at, at Jones Day. So, uh, is, the the uh, my boss, the Attorney General Mike Dewine, um, has historically been very protective of speech. Uh, he had actually filed uh, a similar brief even before I got there in, in a state court of appeals raising concerns with the statute. I think the genesis behind it was something very similar. It dates back to Buckley versus Vallejo, uh, which was um, when Robert Bork was the Solicitor General um, in the, the campaign finance reform bill that was passed then. I think he had serious concerns about it, and but at the same time saw the duty as a as a the attorney general to defend um, federal law. I think that's where my AG came came at it, that he saw his duty to defend state law, but at the same time uh, had these concerns with the statute. So he thought that that approach seemed reasonable in this case, I would imagine. As I said, it was largely before I got there that he had filed this brief. But um, uh, so he, his directions to me were clear. You know, I, I was on the defense side and then other, other lawyers, I, I think it was outside counsel, um, helped him with the amicus brief. So did that make it difficult to defend the law? And did you get any questions about that at the oral argument? I, I did. Uh, I think that I, I blame that on my 9-0 loss, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so J- Justice Kagan, certainly, I rem- if I recall correctly, asked a question, something along the lines of, there seems to be this brief that's raised all sorts of concerns about this statue. What do you say in response? And, um, you know, it, 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 it was... It, it, is what it is. I answered it to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, interesting. That was a standing case. It was just whether they had standing to challenge the law. But on remand, uh, in the end, um, uh, the district court struck the provision down, and that was affirmed by a unanimous uh, Sixth Circuit that include included, I think, Judge Sutton and um, Judge uh, Chief Judge Cole were on the panel. So. Um, so does a dual brief strategy like this affect the adversity of parties, which is a requirement of standing? Did you think you were going to get Fed's court, Fed court's questions? Uh, I did not. Uh, I think the standing was, oh, I mean, the standing was the uh, uh, issue in the case, but I don't think it affected our standing because I was there uh, defending my clients who, who, who were the, ele- the elections commissions and the, the Ohio Elections Commission uh, in that, that case. And this was just a separate amicus brief from the attorney general who was not a party. He was just the, the, the lawyer. Mm-hmm. So. so relatedly, I've noticed that sometimes governors will file amicus briefs taking the opposite position of their AG um, in states where the AG is independent from the governor. This seems like an unusual setup. Do you think this presents any confusion for judges about who is presenting the actual interest, um, the state's interest in a case? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I don't know if it presents confusion, but I think it all relates to uh, state law. Um, f- thankfully, we, we haven't had to deal with the situation of uh, a government a governor that has different views than the attorney general in, in most things. I think uh, under Ohio law, we would um, take the position that it's not a unitary executive, unlike the federal. So you have Article 2, which is the unitary executive. Uh, in Ohio, we have separate statewide officers, including the governor and including the attorney general. Um, and so I think my office has historically taken the decision that we make all litigating decisions or mostly all litigating decisions. Other states, it might be, might be different. Um, so I think um, whether governors can or should be doing this actually depends in our federal system on uh, what the state law uh, requires. So shifting gears a bit, during the Obama administration, your state was frequently involved in litigation against the federal government. Since Trump took office, how has your job changed? Uh, so if if he had not won, I would probably be in 
um, District Court of uh, Columbia, the DDC, uh, litigating the stream protection rule. We were taking the lead in, in challenging this expansive uh, expansive rule on the Surface Mining Act, and I would have – it was a, a huge book, a huge rewrite, um, and, and um, Congress actually did away with the, the rule under the Congressional Review Act and that that um, act obviously has gotten a lot of use. It has uh, since uh, Jan- January of 2016 or whenever. So I would. Um, it's thankfully that was a very um, difficult t- case. I, I mean, we obviously thought we were right, but I meant difficult in terms of the complexity of the Surface Mining Act and this uh, thousand-page <laughs> regulation that included um, uh, words um, uh, that. Uh, were very difficult to understand, so I was I was very very happy that the Congressional Review Act was passed with respect to that provision. Uh, but uh, yeah, generally speaking, I don't know that our rule has changed all that much. Obviously, I argued the the Wotus case on, on the in the jurisdictional thing in October. But. Mm-hmm. So you <clears throat> served as a law clerk to Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit. Can you tell us about your experience working for him? Yes, it was a great experience. I don't think I was. Um, Number one, in terms of substance, and then just in terms of working for him because he's such a great individual. Uh, in terms of substance, uh, my writing improved so much that year just from working with somebody who uh, is such a great writer and a legal thinker. Uh, uh, so that experience was fantastic. Uh, and then he, he, um, uh, he, had, he, he had a very um, uh, friendly relationship with uh, his clerks in terms of we'd go running with him. Uh, regularly. Uh, I think uh, all four of us ran regularly on the UVA track. We've heard he's an avid runner. And in fact, um, it's been suggested that President Bush didn't appoint him to the Supreme Court because they clashed over what kind of exercise um, (laughs) was appropriate. I I can't say. I still always have in my head running on the UVA track in January or February. Um, and it had been snowing, and there was actually a snowplow, kind of like a smaller cart that was plowing the track as we're running around. <laughs> so he is definitely a committed runner, I would wow. say. It was, but it, you know, on those the, the, those those experiences were so wonderful just to talk with him. And, um, so you also <laughs> clerked for Justice Kennedy. What's your favorite memory of your time clerking for him? Uh, it was also uh, he's just such a wonderful man. Uh, I, it, it's hard to ha- have one memory of that year working at the Supreme Court, uh, you know, you have to pinch yourself. You're, you've got, like, complete access that year. You can come in, and obviously clerks work pretty hard. I, I had oftentimes staying there till uh, late at night just walking around the Supreme Court. But with respect to Justice Kennedy, um, I think that, uh, not to get into any substance, but my favorite parts were where he and the clerks would come in and then just talk about the cases. It was uh, a great experience and, uh, again, another uh, wonderful Man, wonderful writer, and uh, learned so much uh, that year. So one final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Uh, so I I, um, uh, I had thought about uh, uh, this question a little bit. Uh, I think um, I would go with a sleeper justice, uh, <laughs> Justice James Aradell. Uh, he was right. one of the first um, natural rights uh, rejection yeah. of natural rights. Uh, he was one of the first justices, and um, he only had a very short um, term at the court. He died in I think the before eighteen hundred, uh, but he uh, wrote a, a famous decision uh, in Calder versus Bowl, uh, which uh, involved the um, ex post facto clause. Uh, but it, it was almost a debate between. Um, 
Brennan and Scalia, and, and his, <laughs> his opinion struck me as very powerful in terms of a, at a textualist originalist because he was fighting uh, another opinion of a justice that was suggesting that the, uh, the court had the authority to invalidate provisions just if they thought it, it went against natural justice principles. And he was str- strongly opposed to that, suggesting that uh, it's a precursor to Marbury v. Madison. It was before Marbury that the law, the Constitution is the supreme law, but it is law. Um, and uh, the court only has the authority to interpret law and to invalidate a provision when there's something in the law that, um, that the, the, the statute or the law violates, so uh, something in the Constitution. And he also, um, you know, coming at this from um, the state's perspective, he also was the lone dissenter in Chisholm versus Georgia, uh, which was the case that uh, said states did not have sovereign immunity and led to the 11th Amendment. Um, uh, in that, so I, I argued a case... Uh, 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 sheriff versus Gilead that involved the meaning of officer, and I was going to in the background and uh, learned that the U.S. Attorney General was the um, individual who argued that case against the states. Uh, <laughs> the U.S. Attorney General, of course, said that they uh, were not entitled to, or they were entitled to sovereign immunity, even if the states were not. Uh, but you know, so that, so he, so that's the reason I picked him. Were the, were those two decisions? like that. Well, we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Anthony Kennedy edition, where we're going to try to stump our guest, Eric Murphy. Are you ready? I am. All right. First question. As a teen, how did Justice Kennedy earn money during his summer vacations? I'm assuming he was paid for this. It was a job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. You stumped me. Uh, he worked for his uncle um, on oil rigs in Canada and Louisiana. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So I knew he was a uh, – he worked in the California legislature, but maybe that was not during summer vacations <laughs> uh, in terms of, like, being uh, a person who ran between the legislature. Being like a page, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Second question. Uh, what did Kennedy do between Stanford and Harvard Law School? I don't know that one either. He spent a year at the London School of Economics. Wow. Okay, third question. Which attorney general did Justice Kennedy represent in traffic court? Uh, So this would probably be a California attorney general. Um, So which U.S. attorney general? U.S. attorney general, yes. Ed Meese? Yes, that's correct. (laughs) You're you're in the right place. So uh, Justice Kennedy delivered an annual lecture at Heritage back in 2012, or Joseph Story Distinguished Lecture. And when Ed Meese introduced him, he said, I can attest to his prowess as an attorney because on one very interesting occasion, he represented me on a speeding ticket and got me off with the minimum fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic. Okay, next up. Who did Kennedy replace on the Supreme Court? Uh, Powell. Yes, exactly. Uh, Justice Lewis Powell, um, another justice who is considered um, often as the swing vote. And I believe um, your other judge, Wilkinson, clerked for Powell when we were putting trivia together. I think I read that uh, Mm -hmm. somewhere. Okay, final question. How many former Kennedy clerks are current federal judges? And bonus points if you can name them. (laughs) Uh, so let's see. Justice Gorsuch, of course. Yes. Brett Kavanaugh, Ray Kethledge. Yes, yes. Um, There's a very recent one. 
He has a great beard. Uh, Stephanos Bibas. That's correct. <laughs> and then there's... Fi- F- Feinerman, Judge Feinerman. He's a uh, Northern District of Illinois. I don't know. That might be another one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know Judge Feinerman. Uh, so my number may be wrong. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who else? Sydney, who else? Um, Judge Krause from the Third Circuit, I believe. Yeah. So there are at least five, but I'm going to look at look into uh, that possible sixth. <laughs> well, I think you did a great job, uh, and thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. Thank you.